Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. listeners, before the show begins in earnest today, let me tell you a little bit about my Kickstarter. It's at greenscreencomic.com. That's greenscreencomic.com. And as the URL implies, it is for my comic book series, Green Screen, and issue number two of that series, Green Screen Zero Two. It's a fun comedy fantasy adventure series about a movie star lost in an alternate reality called the Cineverse, where every movie ever made is a real world unto itself. It's only up till August 5th, so time is running out. There's a lot of great rewards, a lot of fun stuff. There's buttons, there's posters, there's paper doll cutouts, and there's a comic book. So do me a favor and check it out at greenscreencomic.com. I would really appreciate it. Green Screen Number 2 is a 40-page full-color comic book, and it's complete. There's nothing left to do except send it to you once the Kickstarter is finished. So hurry, don't waste any time. Head on over to greenscreencomic.com any support you can give is greatly appreciated. And with that, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Blockhead listeners, to the latest installment in this ongoing podcast. Today we have the wonderful cartoonist Pat Dorian here, the creator cartoonist behind Lon Chaney Speaks from Pantheon Books, came out in 2020. I'm a little slow on the uptake here, but I happened to come across this in Barnes & Noble not too long ago. And there's a plug for you. And I uh, fell in love with it like it was love at first sight, <laughs> I have to say. Not only uh, is the topic something that I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, Lon Chaney, silent films, film history in general is something that's of great interest to me and perhaps to you too, as somebody who loves visual narrative in all its forms. Um, but on top of that, even more than that, uh, it's classic cartooning, and it just, you know, I had to have it, like, right away. It was one, it's just one of those those books that is steeped in classic uh, illustration, children's illustration and cartooning that comes, harkens back to, oh, you know, the pre-digital era and well beyond, well beyond the advent of superheroes, really. And uh, the cartoonist who, who Pat brought up as a, an influence to him, uh, and an influence on his work in general uh, that I had forgotten all about was one Sid Hoff, who some of you may recall of a certain generation, was the uh, cartoonist behind a wonderful book that was in many ways one of those books that was an introduction to reading for me, uh, Danny and His Dinosaur from way back. And I, I used to, uh, as a kid, I remember going to the library in school uh, and taking that book and sitting at the reading table. And I don't know, did we have reading time or something like that? I'm, I'm not really sure. But I also think that I went to the library on my own quite frequently uh, when we had a chance. And uh, this was one of the books that I went to often because I was, uh, it was a great story and I was really uh, captivated by Sid Hoff's illustrations. And so 
this book carries that tradition forward and it's beautifully done just beautifully done published by pantheon books uh came out in 2020 as i said and uh, i'm just getting to it now <laughs> well pat dorian has got a, a really interesting background uh he was he started off in theater and moved did scenic painting and set design and things of that nature and traveled around doing that for a while and then he studied illustration, and his illustrations have been published by The New Yorker and The New York Times and The Village Voice and many others. He went into animation and worked in animation for a number of years and then game development and then decided he wanted to do comics uh, because he was a lover of visual narrative like you are and I am. And uh, his debut graphic novel attracted uh, the great Chip Kid, who those of us who love Peanuts know uh, for his many contributions to Peanuts scholarship, and Chip Kid happens to be uh, one of those who, who I guess, uh, is in charge of soliciting books for Pantheon. So, uh, and there you have it. Uh, his debut graphic novel was a big hit, uh, critically a, a, acclaimed, and of course it attracted me, and so that's why he's here today. And he's got lots of upcoming work, which is still kind of under wraps, so we can't really talk about that too much. But anyway, Pat is a great guest, lots to talk about. If you're a lover of movie history and, and comics in general, well, you'll love this interview with Pat Dorian. So without further ado, Pat Dorian and myself in conversation. So, um, yeah, so uh, you got AC or no AC? I've got AC. Oh. Got two ACs. One for my studio, one for the living room. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. Well, well, at least there's there's some solace, some some help somewhere. Yes. I'm upstairs in my, um, I have a makeshift recording studio, and it's in a closet uh, covered with fabric. And usually it's quite comfortable. But uh, today, and the last time I did a, uh, an interview, it gets, after a couple hours, I'm like, if I, you know, just suddenly go quiet, it's because I fainted. Okay. Okay, That's good to know. Right. <laughs> yeah, good to know. All right. All right. You know, you can you can call 911 or something. But anyway, all right. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Hey, Pat, Dorian, welcome to Blockhead. Hi. Thanks for having Hi. me thrilled to have you here and pat is the uh for those who don't know is the author cartoonist behind a wonderful book that came out in 2020 called lon cheney speaks and uh it's a it's a really charming wonderful book about you know a character in movie history who looms large but not too many people know much about so pat how did you get interested in lon cheney uh, well, first of all, I've, I've always been a horror fan, so that was kind of my first, Phantom of the Opera was probably my first, I guess, look at Lon Chaney. Um, originally, I had thought about doing a book on Todd Browning, mm. who directed Dracula and Freaks, um, which probably people, you know, I'm sure a lot of people know about Dracula, Ella mm -hmm. uh, Um, uh, but when I did some more research, uh, you know, I found out that Todd Browning was known as the Lon Chaney director because they had collaborated so many times. Yeah, um, I wasn't aware of that at all. I was really surprised to find that out from your book. But go on, keep telling me. I mean, there was there was a rumor that he, if Lon Chaney had not died, 
that possibly he would have been cast as Dracula. But I mean, there's some like contracts, paperwork, but nothing's definite, but there was like a slight rumor. So I just kept on and basically doing more research. And I found that Lon Chaney had a really interesting story and I wanted to tell it. Um, so what I think many people who, who are listening to this don't know is that you have a background already in film and theater, do you not? Yes. Uh, so originally, uh, I went to school for film and acting. Um, I had done a lot of like theater and and whatnot in high school, and usually like dinner theater and community colleges. Um, and I originally had basically planned to go to school just for acting, uh, huh? but I decided that I always I always hated auditions. And <laughs> I thought for some, I don't know, silly reason, I thought painting would be a more lucrative career. <laughs> uh, so I you know, majored in painting at uh, MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I graduated my, my BFA from there. Um, but after I kind of graduated, I was kind of, I guess, not really feeling like I had a place in fine art. I, I was interested in doing narrative painting with figures and at that time, there was a lot of more conceptual installation work um, that was kind of popular. Um, I remember I mean, it was like a senior critique, and um, you know, I had done lots of charcoal drawings. They were figurative. They were cowboys. They were, you know, I was always a fan of horror films and science fiction. So there were monsters, and my critique was, you know, my I, he was an art historian and said, I just don't, you know why are you doing this painting and drawing it's it's dead it's kind of like it's been done and i just kind of i don't know i just thought like maybe this wasn't the right place for me uh so i started to look at different options after i graduated i got an agent for doing uh, illustration and i started working back in theater again um building and painting sets um and then uh, probably maybe at three years, I decided I maybe wanted to move to New York, uh, and I went to the MFA program uh, at SVA for illustration, studied with Marshall Erisman. Um, worked there, you know, did two years at the two-year program, and I started doing editorial illustration. Um, I think my first piece was for the New York Times, was the Invasion of Iraq, uh, it was a letter section. Um, but while I was in the program, I started, you know, basically experimenting with animation. Mm-hmm. And for my senior thesis, I ended up doing like an animated film. I think it ended up being this is not motion film. It was four minutes long. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to get the award for most outstanding thesis. Wow. Um, which is great. I mean, I was kind of just teaching myself how to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, what I sort of realized that. What I was really interested in was sequential storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I did the editorial illustration for the New York Times, and it was, you know, I was very appreciative and I was lucky to do it. And then, you know, I did. I remember one time I got a piece in the New York Times, a piece in the Village Voice, and I did a New Yorker cartoon. And I thought, like, okay, so how do I feel? Was I happy? Was I satisfied? And I just thought, this, this is it. I just keep on doing this 
this is just doing one-offs and I get an article and I just illustrate it. I would thought, you know, I wanted something a little more challenging. So um, after grad, you know, I did the animation for my thesis. And after I graduation, I, you know, continued with the illustration, but I also wanted to try to get into animation. Uh, and eventually I got some small gigs and eventually that led to me going full-time freelance in animation mm-hmm. and focusing more on that. You know, uh, let's backtrack a, a little bit. So, you know, when you were, um, you've got a, some background, as we you were saying, in acting and in theater and whatnot. And then you you did some scenic painting uh, for, for theater companies and whatnot on the East Coast. What, what kind of work was that? And, and how was it regular work? Did you travel around um, with a particular company or were you doing set design, so, painting or... What I did was, uh, so when I graduated my undergrad and got my BFA, I worked in regional theater. So I worked at center stage. Uh, so I was a scenic artist. So basically what a scenic artist does is, you know, they work with the set designer and, you know, the technical director. And they're responsible for painting, you know, like for example, backdrops, doing all the texturing, basically painting the sets and all the props uh, sometimes. Um, so I did that at center stage and then I did summer stock. And then I worked at, uh, in Virginia stage in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and I was the lead scenic artist there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was kind of nice, you know, when I was going to school, I mean, I didn't use the internet at all. So, you know, when I graduated, all I knew how to do was paint. I could yeah. paint and I could draw really well. It was a great figurative school. All we did was, life drawing again and again and again um and just paint paint from life um constantly um so when i graduated i had all those skills and i thought well i could paint a set i could paint a backdrop um you know like for example i mean summer stock is pretty intense um and we did so many shows and we were working on these huge like 30 foot by like i don't know 40 foot backdrops and we were painting them with, I think they were aniline dyes, but they're kind of like, they're translucent backdrops. And you basically, it's like a watercolor painting, mm-hmm. but instead of water, you're, you're using bleach. Bleach. So I was in Florida. You mean like Clorox bleach? Yeah, it was like kind of Daytona, Florida, really, really hot. Buckets, five gallon buckets of bleach everywhere. Oh my God. <laughs> It was you, you could have been asphyxiated. Uh, I mean, it was it was in a warehouse. It was well, well, air conditioned, you know, and, but still it was just kind of like it was kind of like I, I kind of saw myself like maybe this isn't the best for Bell's like health reasons to continue to. Anyway, so, you know, I, I used to I mean, it was really intense physically. I mean, I don't think I could do it now. I mean, I used to have nightmares where I would, you know, have basically paintbrushes for for arms and hands, and I, <laughs> I couldn't stop painting because it was just like, you're working like a 10-hour, 12-hour day, seven days a week. There are no days off um, in, when you're doing summer stock. Um, it's just intense. I mean, it's great for, you know, when you're just starting out, you learn a lot. Um, I mean, I learned a lot about different textures and how to use color and design which i still use um in my work today yeah Uh, but um yeah but working in theater i mean 
I mean, just even like, I don't know, act like I, it's weird, you know, I'm 45 right now and it's strange how basically everything you know or learn that basically comes into your work. Um, like when I'm doing, you know, when I, even when we did kind of like acting, mm-hmm. you know, we would rehearse all the time, we would memorize the lines, but at a certain point when you just, you memorize the lines so much, it's kind of like you're, it's this balance of kind of control and chance. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one thing that I, I really liked about theater and still love about it is that, you know, when you go see a play, it's kind of like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Um, you'll never see the same performance again. It's just kind of like it's collective experience. You're sitting in a room with a bunch of strangers and it's like the actors, you know, they know the play, they've rehearsed the lines that, you know, hopefully they memorized the lines, but it's just, there's something that happens differently. There's a little bit of chance. There's sort of a discovery of something new in every performance, like as a scenic artist, a lot of times what I would have to do is, especially during dress rehearsals, is I would have to sit in the audience and I would have to watch the play. Because, you know, I, you know, you look at the set and say, well, that we missed that corner of the wall or this needs to be fixed here. Or like, for example, I remember we wallpapered one set like completely yellow and all the actors were Caucasian. So we put light yellow lights on them. They kind of just led in and blended into the background. Wow. So I had to keep, you know, I would watch the performance from basically different locations in the theater multiple times. And you know, every performance I watched, I could just see like the actor did something different. Someone was a little bit slower on the cue. Someone, you know, a different gesture. Mm-hmm. It was always interesting to me. Well, yeah. I mean, there's this, this with that many pieces, you know, in a work, a collaborative work. The smallest thing can set many other things off or into a different rhythm. And I can imagine that, uh, you know, when an actor says a series of lines together, they're not always in the same rhythm. Sometimes the rhythm has changed. Sometimes the emphasis has changed a little bit, depending on, I guess, what kind of control they have uh, or or what they're thinking or what they want to do at the moment. But um. But you would have to literally, I mean, go back and respond to this every day, or you would have to go back and and do upkeep on sets that were getting a little worn down or something. Is that is that why you were working seven days a week? And was it in response to things that were happening on stage? Sometimes it would, you know, I would have to go do touch ups. But a lot of times when I was working seven days a week was just we were working on the next play. Oh, I see. So it's just like once that's pl- one one show is running, you have another show in production. Okay. Uh, so it was just constantly, you know, one right after the other. Um, so when you are when you're getting ready to paint, and and you're working with the the set designer. Um, so you're you're also are you thinking also in terms of things like lighting? And the color of lighting that's used in a particular scene. I mean, do you have to work all that out and and think about the colors that you're applying to whatever material you're using at the time? You know, in relationship to to all of those kinds of changes, as you were just saying about you know the use of yellow lights and the yellow background. I mean, traditionally, I guess in the past you would. Um, when I started working in theater, you know, like I noticed a lot. I think I, I, I said, I asked the technical director, Tom, I said, Tom, why are all the set designers, their, 
their designs, they're all monochromatic. Uh-huh. And he said, well, it's because they can get more bang for their buck, because that's where the lighting designer can come in. Uh-huh. And he can add different color. Um, so I learned, like, I guess, a lot about, that's why I guess, instead of an emphasis on color, the designer would use texture. Yeah. Textures, different surfaces, like this is a, maybe this is a wood finish and this is a marble. Um, I did a lot of marbleizing. Um, Just basically, you know, creating like a faux finish of marble. Um, But yeah, they would focus mostly on texture rather than color. And then the lighting designer would, add color but that one comment i said about with the yellow wallpaper it actually i think it was my last my last well almost my last show i did was the set designer did pick yellow wallpaper Mm -hmm. um, and like the actors you know came came in and i would have to go i got the note where like we shouldn't have done this so i had the note and i had to go in and usually at because the actors are on stage all day Mm -hmm. i would go on at midnight and work all night uh and i ended up painting uh turning i think it was the yellow wallpaper blue and i had to paint around all these little pieces of fruit yeah and it was all all the wallpaper you know was on a set so it was like a full kitchen um bedroom and whatnot so you like had to cut you know not get any paint on the props and just very it was very meticulous it made me sort of realize, like, you know, I, I'm glad I'm getting out of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, um, were you were you working alone or did you have a crew? Sometimes I would have a crew, but a lot of times, especially in, in regional theater, yeah, there's not a big budget. I mean, I wasn't being paid a lot, but you know, I didn't really need a lot. Um, you know, I didn't. You were young. <laughs> I was pretty young. I didn't have any debt, much debt or like financial need um, at that time. But um, but usually this, you would usually have maybe a scenic artist and an intern. Uh-huh. Sometimes the intern would get, be given free housing or a stipend. Um, but a lot of times I think when I did get in sort of a crunch mode where I had to do like something like that at midnight and I just had to have it done by the next morning, they would hire like over hire. Uh, just for that time um but a lot of times it was you know regional theater was pretty pretty you know lean budgets yeah yeah you know uh and were you uh, a union member no you weren't a union member okay that's interesting because yeah i had a friend who well actually uh, a colleague of mine uh at the university i teach at um worked in scenic painting when she first got out of school um in new york for a little bit uh, which was pretty intense in and of itself, but it paid really well because she was a union member. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so you know, do you miss the the I mean, the distinction between working as a cartoonist on graphic novels and working in theater is quite, you know, apparent, obviously. Do you, do you miss the collaboration or working with a group of people at all? I mean, I sort of it does get a little lonely. Um, uh I mean, I still use a lot of the times, like, this, I guess the reason why I was interested in theater is that, you know, theater is all about storytelling. Yeah. Um, and I still, you know, that's the reason why I like cartooning. Even more so, it's like I get to be the director, uh, the actor, the set designer. So in a way, it's, it's, it's 
you know, it's kind of like I have the best of both worlds. Yeah. Um, and I get to not work, uh, you know, on a hot, in a hot warehouse <laughs> with buckets of bleach. Buckets of um, I still can't figure out how that works. You're working with, how, you, you work with bleach as like a watercolor or something? Or, yeah, or it was basically, you were using aniline dyes, and I think it was, they were even, I think the, the scenic charge told me they were cancerous. Yeah, <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, it was just it was not it wasn't good stuff. I mean, like I I I don't know. I I had seen. I mean, they give you safety. They gave us a lot of safety courses. I mean, they aren't unionized, but they still gave us safety courses. They gave me so many like demos of like how not to use a table saw and how yeah. like you know because you don't want to like sort of jam the wood and have it shoot right back at you or cut off a finger. Right. Um, I only had to get like stitches a couple times in the- <laughs> oh, uh, because I, I almost cut off my hand only a couple of times, you know. Yeah, I, I, I was I was I was carving. I was doing something for I think it was for Christmas Carol and I had to carve uh, a Roman column uh, mm-hmm. capital and you do it out of bloom foam. Yeah. You know, you're, I was really tired and I was just cutting away with, you know, an exacto blade uh, utility knife. Sure. And I just cut my finger off, <laughs> not oh. off, a good chunk of it. So they rushed me to the emergency room, and got some stitches. But um, there's a lot of a, a lot of accidents happen like that. The, New York is unionized. It's true. Like I thought about joining the union when I came here. Yeah. But at the same time, I I kind of realized, like I looked around, and I, it seems like a lot of the scenic artists do a lot of like murals that are really high up. Yeah. I have kind of a f- big fear of heights. Oh, I see. Okay. So I thought maybe that's probably not a good idea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. Well, you know, it's interesting as you're talking, I um, because I've I've got similar kind of background actually, uh, although not in theater, but um, in in terms of coming to storytelling from a. F- an interest in filmmaking, you know, and um, narrative, you know, visual storytelling, sequential imagery, and uh, and and have a little bit of experience, not working in theater, but I did set design for a um, uh, an exhibition at a children's museum called um, Dynamation, and it was these big animated dinosaurs, you know, life-size dinosaurs that actually they're like robots and they move, you know, um, it scares the crap out of kids. And anyway, I I was fortunate. I was working for this children's museum doing a couple of courses and they hired me to do the backdrops for this whole thing, which is which was daunting in and of itself. We had a you know a very limited time frame, and we had to work very fast. And I was working pretty much by myself, although I got my wife and my sister to help with props and stuff. But it was it, you know painting on a scale that I'd never painted on before, and I had absolutely no experience doing this stuff. So it was all new to me, and I was painting primarily with latex paint, which cost a fortune. Um, but I didn't know anything about color lights and how to work with color lights. So, you know, I painted everything in color, you know, and when they brought the show in, of course, they have all these color lights and all the colors I painted started to change, you know, because of um, uh, the way they were using the lights. Fortunately, they they played with them enough so that it worked in the end. But it was a little scary there for a little touch and go. But it was an inter- interesting experience to take you know graphic skills and blow them up on that scale yeah you know? 
But um, I came out of uh, a similar interest in storytelling, really. And what I liked about comics versus because I went to school uh, originally to study film and animation at Philadelphia College of Art many, many years ago. It's University of the Arts now. And um, while I was there, I was learning the basic filmmaking techniques and working with other students and whatnot. And then I quit school and I, I couldn't make films anymore because back in the day, you had to have all of this equipment, which cost a fortune. Plus, you know, you had to be able to lights and cameras and you had to have film and you had to be able to get the film processed. And it cost a fortune to do this kind of stuff. What was the best way to continue to tell stories was to go back to comics, which is what I started out doing. And so yeah. it's a separate kind of realization, you know, um, this idea that, oh, wow, you know, comics, I can do everything. I can be the director here and the actors. And that's one of the things I wanted to touch on, too, is that you you went into animation. And have you found that your background as an actor has helped you at all? Working yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's helped me. I mean, the idea, it's like whenever I, whenever I, you know, approach a scene, you try to sort of, you act it out. You mm -hmm. physically, you know, um, acting it out, looking at a mirror and making different expressions. I mean, essentially animators are actors, frustrated yes. actors. Yes. Um, so it's, it was always, you know, incredibly helpful. Um, I mean, I teach at, SVA and Pratt Institute in New York right. um, and I always you know I try to get my students to like you know act it out like we once you know I found like a script of uh, from a Twilight Zone Twilight Zone episode and we like went around the room and let's just act it out um, oh that's great it's the one with I I'm blanking on the title but it's the one with William Shatner in the plane oh yeah oh and, yeah and, and we we just acted it out like okay we're gonna act it out I'm gonna say switch you're gonna be this character we'll just go around the room and we'll just act out the entire thing um, so then we acted it out and then I said okay now what I want you to do is I want you to create like a beat board uh -huh. create a beat board so then they would you know use their experience of what when they were acting it out to inform their drawings and how they tell that story visually in an economic way. Um, I mean, one of the things when I was working in animation is that, you know, I started to getting back into comics because like I was, I was working in, um, I was, I forget what production, but what I learned was you know, drawing a comic is a lot faster than making an animated film. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I made an animated film and it would take me like six months or something. And like comics, I could like, okay, I can do a one page story, eight panels, bum, 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 beginning, middle and end, done, a week. There you go, at the most. Yeah. Um, that's even like working a full time job in animation. Um, but I could do that. And, I, and the thing was, you know, I wanted to become a better storyteller. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could really, you know, the way that I've learned the most is basically just doing it. Yeah. And, doing comics if i can do them faster and basically more the more i do it the better i'm going to get so first i start doing like one page stories then two page stories then 12 page stories and so forth until eventually you know i could do a book um but he was animating i mean get back to your question yes it was definitely knowing acting helped the animation 
and then we you know acting and animation also help the comics so everything kind of like flows into each other mm-hmm. from different experiences um oh absolutely yeah you know i have uh, I, I do the same thing i teach animation at the again at the university i teach at and um one of the issues one of the things i'm always telling my students the same thing that you you're doing is that you know animation animators are actors you have to act it out you have to you know feel the character and and think in terms of the character and how the character physically appears and gestures and all those kind of, and moves you know movement because it's all about movement and so i'm going to steal your idea <laughs> um find a script and and see if i because one of the things i find is that they're particularly in a classroom environment so you, these are guys who are used to drawing by themselves so much. Yeah. They're, they're very, you know, introverted in that sense. And not always, but a lot of the times. And it, so they don't go through the process, you know, of, of acting it out, trying to draw that out. Because it's such an important part of being a good animator is inhabiting the character and then acting the role of the character through your movement and your expressions. Yeah, especially like I, I do remember one incident like when I was working in Canada, and we were working on um, it was a soccer, it was an action and an animated action show about soccer team, and you have a bunch of animators like we don't play soccer, <laughs> so we have a bunch of film cameras, you know, video cameras, and they, you know, we tried to play soccer, and then we, you know, we realized that we kind of suck at it. Uh, so it's like uh like oh i'm getting like out of breath and like people are like having asthmatic attacks and like you know chain smoking whatever but then we're like okay let's go to the high school like soccer team and we'll film them like you know whatever and we use that as reference but you know the animators you know disney like using so much like live action and like you know filming something for using reference is so essential i mean it's not essential but it's it's such a valuable resource um, I wish it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how, what your experience has been, but it's just, it kind of boggles my mind because it's like, now there's so much technology, you know, you have basically a computer in your pocket, you have a film camera in your pocket, and you can easily like film someone acting something out or, you know, getting reference. There's so much there as far as like access to different films and whatnot. Um, I mean, when I was in high school, I had, I remember my library had like five art books. And if I wanted to go see like real like paintings, I had to basically, you know, take the train to Washington, D.C. and go to a gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, but like now it's like there's so much, I don't know, available. Maybe it's, I know for students, it's it's maybe overwhelming that there's so much there. So, you know, they don't know where to like start. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I think you got a point there. It's just a flood of of material and information. And unless you're directed, you know, by somebody who's had some experience in that arena, uh, you don't know where to begin, I would think, you know, but uh, um, but at the same time, you know, in in our situation, when we go back in time, uh, there was very precious little information available, uh, you know, except in the library. Even then you were were at the mercy of whatever you know uh librarian was working there and how informed they happened to be when it came to purchasing their books and uh, 
So it was, it was, it was you know, uh, hit and miss, as it were, in terms of information back in those days. Uh, so it's like, you know, it's a feast or famine situation, I suppose, um, in a way. Um, so, you know, I'm curious, um, you worked as an illustrator for a while uh, and probably still do a little bit of it. Did you ha- did you have an agent when you came out of school or is it just something that just sort of happened? I had an agent briefly when I when I came out of undergrad, yeah. but it didn't quite work out. Um, they weren't really the right agent for me. I think they mostly f- represented photography, uh-huh. uh, and it was like a weird kind of transition period. I think in anim- with illustration, um, but when I, I guess the next time I had an agent was, let me see, when I basically had two possible book deals. Uh huh. And I was at like a little, I was at a, at a comic show and I was exhibiting. And I was like, all right, I have these meetings with these people and these people are interested in buying my book or possibly buying my book. And I don't know anything about contracts. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I know something about contracts, but I'm not like the expert. It's not my expertise. Um, so I, I asked, uh, I think one of the guys that I was tabling with, I'm like, okay, so what should I do? You should get an agent, you should get here. And he recommended me someone and he said, let me type an email. And that's how I was introduced to an agent. And then from there, I ended up selling two books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's this weird thing where it's like, some people say like, how do you get an agent? Uh, <laughs> you get a book deal you know how, how do you get a book deal you get an agent it's just kind of like back and forth it was so it was kind of like i had two i had publishers that were interested in publishing my work so i could go to an agent and say you know i've done all this legwork um i have two potential you know deals would you be interesting and that's you know to an agent i i suspect that it's appealing to have someone because if they've done all the legwork and they have someone who possibly interesting it's kind of just it's much easier than to go cold pitch your cold call your work to some publisher um but from there that's how i got an agent and that's how i've been working ever since um sure so it's it's kind of interesting though that you know the the illustration jobs sort of just came came along uh before you had an agent which is kind of well being in new york is was you know helpful but a lot of times what i would do is and we was I was working at a time that they were still doing portfolio drops off. Mm-hmm. Oh so yeah, sure. I would do that. Um, I remember one time I pretend uh, more than one time I would pretend I was a messenger uh, dropping off the package. Uh, uh, I would turn my head hat backwards, and I you know when I was pretty young, so I was like, okay, you look like a messenger, go ahead, and I would just like. Hi, I'm here. Go uh, go upstairs, and I drop off my portfolio. I'm like, hi, I'm Patrick Dorian. I'm here to drop off my portfolio for the New Yorker. I'm like, I'm like, oh yes, thank you. And then I would go back down. Um, but <laughs> you have to be pretty scrappy. Um, yeah. and I I worked, you know, a lot of a lot of like you know, side jobs. Um, I said being a messenger, um, and I decided to stop being messenger. When I, it was it was a cool experience, but still I was just kind of like, this is Pat, what are you doing? Stop being an idiot. Um, I went to Milton Glaser's studio, mm-hmm. and I had to pick up a piece of original art, take the original art, and deliver it at the New York Times. Mm-hmm. 
so I thought, you know, this this is what I should be doing. I shouldn't be a messenger. So I, you know, I try to think of something else. Um, another way to sort of support myself while I was trying to do the side hustle work. Oh, okay. Is there is it is it raining there? Yes, it is. It's raining oh. and thundering. Okay, I thought. Yeah, I was like, wow, it sounds like there's a thunderstorm going on. Um, which is amazing because it's not doing that here, but I'm three hours away, so uh, it's not so amazing. But well, anyway, so I mean, you have an extraordinary background. I mean, it, it really is diverse and and um, quite interesting. And so, you know, one of the things that strikes me too in regard to your ability as an actor and also as an animator that you you gravitated towards Lon Chaney because he's. It, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense because Lon Chaney's a silent film actor. And silent film actors have to work gesture and expression rather than dialogue. And, and that really fits right in with, you know, uh, the background or sensibility of somebody who works as an animator. Yes. I mean, I, I he had to sort of, not to give too much away of the book, um, but both of his parents were uh, deaf. Mm-hmm. So he had what is known as, I guess, a deaf face. So, yeah. you know, deaf, someone who's deaf, they communicate through sign language, which is basically through gesture and through facial expressions. So he was great. He was amazing pantomime. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, he, he was, I wish, I hopefully this book helps, but, you know, I, I hope more people learn about him. Well, it sent me to learn more about him, I have to say, you know, I mean, as I said early on, Lon Chaney's a name that looms large, but, you know, unless you're a silent film buff or somebody who's really taking the time out of the, you know, to watch silent films, you know, um, you're not really that familiar with his actual performances. Uh, But, I mean, my gosh, when you start to watch his performances, like in The Hunchback of Notre Dame or something, I mean, he's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, really extraordinary. Um, I mean, he he deserved the acclaim that he received in his life. Obviously, you know. I mean, I was I was quite, and I, I this is terrible because um, I actually, you know, I have a background both in in filmmaking and film history, and have watched a lot of silent films over the years, and and a lot of films from you know around the world and whatnot. But Lon Chaney was somebody who whose work had really I hadn't really paid close attention to. But this book uh, really got me interested in his career and his work and his ability. And, you know, when you do watch his performances, just quite astounding in in the breadth of their expressivity and and their emotionality, you know, and they're convincing. I mean, even today, I mean, the gestures, which are silent film gestures and very theatrical, still uh you know there are there are moments in his performances that i mean if you actually look if you if you look at some of the performance from like for example the hunchback and the dumb yeah he actually in some of the things he's actually signing oh really i didn't realize that like the sign like for example when the villagers are storming spoiler alert everyone sorry guys uh you know uh, they're um, they're attacking the cathedral, and he's looking at them. The sign of hate, that kind of like sound. And when he goes, you know, Esmeralda, he kind of like the sign of love, and he kind of like puts his hands over his heart, and he's signing, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, 
but yeah, he was just, he was, he, I mean, silent acting is by itself in general pretty broad as far as their gestures and that, but he could also do things that are just very subtle, like a subtle, like, movement of his eyes or gestures of his hands that he could create this you know incredible compelling performance um i think uh yeah he was just an amazing actor and it has an amazing story um yeah. i mean i think most people are more familiar with his son uh Crane, who took his name um but yeah he yeah who is actually i mean i'm I love the Wolfman movies, but I'm not a big fan of of Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, as, a, as an actor. Uh, I, I always felt like he left something to be desired. I mean, I thought he was he had his moments. I thought he was he was good in um, Mice and Men. I thought he was uh, uh-huh. that. I think that was one of the standout moments. Um, it's funny. I just watched uh, a Haunted Palace with. Um, Vincent Price and he and uh, Lon Chaney Jr. was in it as well. He played like I think the caretaker. Oh. Uh, but it was kind of interesting seeing Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr. Um, together. Yeah, was this later in his career? Yeah, much later. Yeah, because l- later on he went through some difficult times, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, I think he had some problems with alcohol. Yeah, yeah, uh, and which. Okay, obviously, you know, there was a familial history, not with Lon Chaney himself, but with his mother. Not the spoiler alert. But, um, yeah, that that's information from Lon Chaney's life also. But um, yeah, so that's it, it's really kind of I mean, the story is is really a remarkable story and uh, and, and not a very well known story, as you say, um, you know, Lon, and, and the quote that comes from the book and from. Lon Chaney himself is that in between films, there is no Lon Chaney. Mm-hmm. He's a private guy, uh, very stayed away from Hollywood, you know, uh, the, the glamour and glitz of Hollywood and all that kind of stuff he wasn't really interested in. He was interested in the craft, right? And, uh, yes. and it's obvious. And the, the other thing that blows my mind, too, is that he just worked out of this little makeup box that all of his stuff was more or less created, you know, from the same little makeup box, which he carried throughout his career, which is quite, quite astonishing, really, when you think about how many different faces and how many different, um, you know, well, just faces that he had, you know, a thousand faces, as as the saying goes. Um, So has the, you know, how's the book been perceived? Um, I mean, I was lucky. I mean, I was lucky enough to get, um, it's a Kirkus Star review, um, which was, I mean, what I'm told is, is rare um, for a day de- for a debut book. Uh-huh. A publisher weekly gave it a good review, a positive review, and um, it was reviewed in the New York Times. Oh, that's which, great. So you know, I for a debut book, I start Kirkus review, New York Times, and Publishers Weekly. That's I don't think I could ask for more. Um, it just got translated in Portuguese. Oh, terrific! <laughs> <laughs> so you know, some more people get to you know learn about Lon Chaney. Uh, so that's fun. Um, and you know, I've uh, I'm now working on a new book for Pantheon, mm-hmm. which published Lon Chaney. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be working with them again. Uh, and yeah, I mean it's I've it's been I it was it's always you know 
I'm sure this for other people as well. It's like when you when you work on something, you create something. It's like you're always like the thing that you're working on now is yeah. probably like that's what's your favorite thing. Sure. So it's kind of like it feels like I just I just finished like a new book for first second. Um, it's like a 220 page book, and I and I worked on it for maybe like two years. Uh huh. Um, and it's kind of like. I just finish it and it's like I'm over it. I'm like I'm ready for the next one. I don't want to look back. I just want to yeah. keep. I mean, you you it's you know, but then when you look back, it's like okay, like you did some good stuff here, and it's like you're always. I mean, I always feel like what am I what am I going going to do next? Yeah. Uh, how can I push myself? How can I challenge myself? What can I do better? What can I do differently? Can I you know I always want to play this you know try new things, try pushing myself. You know, I like the sense of like just taking chances, never playing it safe. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Well, you know, I know I, I I understand the feeling exactly. I mean, I have a Kickstarter right now for a book that's uh, that I worked a year on. It's it's you know I don't know why it took me a freaking year, but it took me a year, and um and I, I'm really proud of it. I think it turned out really well. Blah blah blah. But I'm already doing the next thing, and so it's kind of it's hard to maintain the level of enthusiasm for something you did even two months ago when yeah. you got something new on the drawing table and you're excited about that because, you know, it's pushing you forward. And I think that that's just, you know, that's the life of an artist, right? Is perpetual dissatisfaction and the yeah. love process. And I think, you know, ultimately that's what it comes down to is that we, we just love the process so much and, you know, drawing every day or whatever. And, and, um, and you can't stop because you're so in love with it and it's so much a part of your organic being and it is what it is. And so what happened in the past is in the past, you know, and it's even if it's only two months ago or there's just a there's a Kickstarter. <laughs> you know? So um, so uh, there was a question popping in the mind. I got to get back to what it was, though. Um, so let me think here. Uh Back to Lon Chaney, back to, okay, so one of the things about the book that hit me right from, you know, what happened to me was, I wasn't, I'm, it's, it's interesting, I don't pay a lot of attention to, um, like, I'm not reading the comics journal anymore, and I'm not really, I used to, but I'm not reading it so much anymore, and I'm just too busy working on stuff, so I'm not paying a lot of attention to press around graphic novels and whatnot, but when something crosses my path and it strikes me as being interesting or exciting, you know, I'll grab it. Okay. So I was in Barnes and Noble and, um, I was looking through the books and I came across your book and your book is like graphically right in my wheelhouse. You know, it's not that my work looks like this. It's just that this is, this approach to cartooning is something that I, I dearly love. And so, you know, which is that there is a connection in your work not to superhero cartooning, but to, you know, cartooning, cartooning, um, that, and the history of cartooning. So, you know, so it has this look in a way of, of cartooning and illustration from the past, from, from say late forties, 1950s, you know, New Yorker style, although it's not one panel stuff, but it's of that, that milieu and which I found appealing right away. And so I picked it up and I just love the graphic, you know, quality of it. And I love the whole, the whole approach that you took to it, which is, you know, again, very free and very cartooning, uh, cartoony. I mean, and when I say that, I mean, in, in the best possible 
yeah. way. Some people think that's an insult. I, I think it, of it as being, you know, the highest compliment, really. And so, you know, I have to ask you, what are your influences? Where did your 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 stylistic approach come from? You know, and what what is it that, you know, that fueled that look and that approach? I mean, I think I animation probably was probably the biggest influence um, because of animation, you know, you're trying less is more. I mm-hmm. guess I would consider myself sort of an essential essentialist uh-huh. to capture the essence of something. Um, I'm trying when I'm drawing, what I'm thinking about is shape a lot and contrast and proportion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, it feels like whenever I, so I teach, a, I teach a character design class and I teach drawing for animation. Um, so I'm always like telling students, like, don't think about anatomy, think about shape, think about outline, think about, you know, think about contrast. Contrast is your greatest, you know, tool, like how, how you use different shapes, like angular shapes versus curved shapes, um, the line quality, you know, thinking about those things that, you know, that, I guess, craft that I learned from animation, thinking about construction, thinking about volume, um, really influenced me. Um, I guess when I started on animation, my first big job was at Animagic, and it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's it's probably still true today. It's a lot of times you have some really, really, really talented, incredibly you know gifted artists working on crappy productions uh, <laughs> on Scooby-Doo. No offense to Scooby-Doo, but you know, just. Um, but I I was very incredibly lucky to have my first boss was uh, Shane Glines, um, and Shane Glines is an incredible character designer, and he's also. I mean, he knows he knows the history of cartooning, and he, for a while, I don't know if he still runs it. Uh, Cartoon Retro was a website, um, but he kind of sort of exposed me to different artists that I had never, like cartooning. Roy Nelson is a big influence on him, um, but like a whole history of cartooning that I had never known about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started, you know, I. When I was in school, like a lot of my teachers were, you know, they were very good figurative teachers. And I had some abstract expressionist teachers with like, you know, um, Richard Deaconhorn and and not him, but they were students of his, but composition and design, composition and design, they would always like, how how are you placing the figure on the canvas? You know, composition, composition, composition. And I would always think about the principles and elements of design. Mm-hmm. Those always like drilled into like pattern, movement, rhythm, you know, focus. And I would always you know, think about those things. And I would think about like composition of the entire canvas, not just that. But then when I met Shane and I'm like, okay, well, I, it was sort of an epiphany when I started like, okay, well, character design in this sort of like stylized represent, representational kind of way of working it's just you're using composition, but you're using composition in the figure. You're arranging the different shapes. So like I started thinking in like, for example, threes, like large, medium, small, like how I arrange my proportions and compositions. I would think like, okay, I, if I have a curved shape, then I'm gonna have a slight angle next to it. 
and I would learn how to sort of use that sense of design, use that sense of composition that I learned in figure painting and apply it to what I, you know, what he was teaching me in cartooning. Like I had never done a full like rotation before, character rotation, and he would show me how to do it. And I, you know, I would learn the craft of cartooning from him. Um, but he was probably one of the biggest or earliest influence of me, you know, because that's like learning figurative painting and traditional painting. Um, and his name again was Shane? Glines, G-L-I-N-E-S. Okay. Um, but I believe he's still the lead designer for uh, Harley Quinn on HBO. But he's, you know, in, he's an incredibly talented person. And, you know, honestly, you know, I just, he was, in a production, he was the most probably, like, he had probably had more talent in his pinky than a lot of people in the room, but you wouldn't know that. He's so incredibly humble. Oh, wow. And he would just be quiet. He would sit in the room. He had a, had a sketch pad on a like you know clipboard, and he would just be drawing. He's just drawing. That's it. He's just interested in the drawing. He never went to school. I mean, he, as far as I know, he was just all kind of self-taught. He watched. You know, he worked at Spumco. He worked on Bruce Tim with the Batman animated series. He's you know, Samurai Jack, I believe he worked on. Um, but he oh, was great shows. Yeah, he isn't. He I think he drew a lot of the sexy. He, he draws really, you know, sexy appealing girls. So he always got those kind of um, assignments. But he was the most humblest person you would know. And he would just, you know, he's just interested in the work. Um, not interested in the bullshit and he just wanted to do great work and he would you know I learned from example like okay this is how you act you know someone who this talent he basically could go around the room and like tell people to go piss off and like he didn't do that he was like the nicest guy I'm like right like you don't have to be you know I just learned a lot from him and he was incredibly generous when he didn't have to be uh, which is very rare um, a lot of times, especially in illustration and, and animation and probably, you know, some comics, it's very competitive. Yeah. So it's very rare that you meet someone who's generous with just information or advice. Um, so, you know, he he was I am I will I am still I was grateful then. And I will still I'm still grateful now every time I, you know, we're, and he we don't talk a lot. But every time, you know, I, I do, I try to remind myself to really thank him because he was um incredibly helpful um, and, um what a great testament you know yeah really very uh, i mean i'm gonna look him up based on your recommendation i wasn't familiar with the name and uh i certainly am excited about looking into his work now um, this is one of the things about animation i, I don't I, I don't mean to interrupt because you, this is fascinating but one of the things about it is is that the crews who are working on animation in animation programs and, and commercial animation, the crews are so large, uh, and often there's this degree of anonymity to those of us who are outside of the industry. Um, you know, so we don't know certain names, uh, you know, key people working here and there, and the amount of talent that goes into just about everything, as you said, no matter the quality of the program or the end result because economics play such a big role but anyway um that's great shane glines that's that's the guy okay i'm gonna look up look him up but you were go, go on you were talking about some of the other influences i mean the, i guess the other influences i mean illustrators from um the 40s and 50s like uh well, sid hoff mm -hmm. i always 
I always like Sid Hoff because he's kind of like the meat and potatoes of cartoony. Uh-huh. Uh, Man, I haven't thought of that name in a long time. He's pretty, you know, he's one of my favorites. But I guess more recently, I, I guess I've been looking at more like European cartoonists. Uh, I kind of like a, I guess maybe this is too, maybe this is not too broad of a generalization. I kind of like a European line. Sure. It's a little bit more, it's a little more free flowing. The shapes are a little more curved, um, like Joan Safar. Okay. Uh, Joan Safar or Christian Christopher Bain, uh, or uh, what's I can't pronounce I, Bluch, B L U T C H. Okay, uh, Bluch, I'm impossible. Yeah, um, I'm not really up on my European cartoonists, so I'm embarrassed to say but again this is an education for me too so i'm gonna i'm gonna be looking into some of these folks um so i can't pull up joan safar how do i spell safar safar is spelled uh, s-f-a-r okay oh yeah okay. also he's a director and for animation the rabbi's cat oh okay i've seen the book i don't know the yeah i don't know the work okay great but i love the look I love the look. It's great. Um, Sid Shore, um, Sid Dorf, um, or Sid Hoff, rather. I'm sorry. Sid Hoff, uh, Danny and the Dinosaur. Um, that was a book of my childhood. You know, as I pulled up Sid Hoff, I was like, oh, my God. You know, I, it's been so long since I looked at that book. And I can see, you know, the connection right away between Sid Hoff's work and what you're doing. And I just absolutely love that. I love that connection. But it's also interesting to hear what you're saying about European cartooning versus uh, American cartooning, um, because there is a different approach, a different look to European cartooning. Um, also, it's kind of interesting, too, that you've, you you move in that direction. So many uh, younger cartoonists are, are and I, I say younger, I know you're 45, so you're not a kid anymore. But, uh, My wife still thinks I'm cute. <laughs> What's that? My wife still thinks I'm cute. Well, thank, thank God for that. And, and and my wife says the same about me. And and, uh, and again, I thank the stars every day <laughs> that something is clouding her vision. Uh, but anyway, so, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. A lot of guys of your generation, maybe just a little bit younger, are really so influenced by manga, um, you know, and, and that approach. And so sometimes the European model is kind of left behind, but there's a diversity of of work in European cartooning that really a very rich tradition that I haven't really delved into very much. And, and I admonish myself for not doing so. So tell me some other names, some, some other folks that you're, you're interested in. Is that pretty much the, the top of the list? Well, let me see. I mean, I trying to think about what did I buy recently? Uh, well, Mitchell hooks, he's not a cartoonist, but he does the, uh, book covers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so pulp books a lot. I'm, you know, Lee Ellis. Okay. Uh, Lee Ellis is great. Uh, did a lot of the Black Cat comics and also um, lots of horror covers. Uh, Hank Ketchum, Dennis oh, the Menace. Of course. Also, also an animation background. Great kind of like line that kind of just dances on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Kyle Baker, also an animation background. Yeah, his he's great. He's Kyle Baker's amazing at posing. Um, I mean, I I know maybe he's not the, his shadow comics aren't everyone's favorite, 
but it's just like when I look at them, he's just the the just the silhouettes mm-hmm. and just how he poses stuff. It's so expressive. Just even if it's like a little scribble, it's just how he's being able to like basically boil it down and create this sort of great pose that communicates like emotion and staging its clarity. I mean, he just he does it so well. Um, yeah, Kyle Baker, his Plastic Man stuff is just blow away. Um, yeah. Really amazing. Uh, and you could tell animation plays a big part in what he's doing, too. I mean, he's, he's has such a diverse body of work. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, he's, he never does, I mean, he doesn't really ever do like the same thing twice. He's just always pushing himself. And I mean, even, I even watched the, like, not watched, but like his stuff that he did for Deadpool. I hate I don't know if it if it did well, but like it's just like how he's using some like collage photographs and as backgrounds and using different like like colored holding lines and just I mean he's like traditional and like computer and yeah unafraid too to experiment with his storytelling and uh, you know just plows ahead with with wherever his vision takes him. It's really quite quite astonishing. He's really quite a remarkable cartoonist um so it's a list of some really you know i mean i think anybody listening myself included is going to go down that list and chase down some of these great great names um you know the p- person who i thought of when i first saw your work was seth obviously yeah. i mean you know his yeah. connection to to his work and the loves that he has for cartooning from of the same milieu really same ilk of cartooning you know um i'm sure he's steeped in a lot of the same names that that you are but that's one of the connections i was making um so you you know let's talk a little bit about the path that led you to lon cheney um you got out of school you know you're you're working in animation but you're really becoming bored with it um you've worked for before we skip forward to comics you worked for a couple of different companies in animation what kind of stuff did you work on I mean, I when I was working in animation, I worked first in character, first as an animator. Um, then, you know, I I really, I really wanted to animate, and then I took like a design test, and then I saw like what they were gonna pay me for doing design. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm a designer. Right, here we go. And like, you know, I did the job and said, Pat, you did a really good job. And like, we're going to pay you more money. I'm like, okay, then I'm sticking with the design. And I was like, all right. So, you know, I, I had worked in design. I, you know, I had worked in animation uh, for a bunch of years. And then I, at a certain point, you know, in that idea of like a bunch of talented artists working on not so great projects, you know, it's instability and it's like layoffs. I thought, you know, maybe I want to try something else. And I had always liked, like video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I decided, well, maybe, you know, maybe games are a way, you know, something I could do. It's something with it's interactive, it's storytelling, it's design, it's illustration, um, it's animation. It's maybe, maybe this is something I can apply all my skills to. So, you know, I applied to a couple game companies and I worked in game companies for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked on like I don't Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. I did the animation for that and the artwork for that. Some some of the artwork, I love it. But um, I think the last big project I worked on was I did a lot of like uh, face filters, video apps. Uh, I did one for 
I guess it was the biggest one was for The Walking Dead. Oh. Uh, so I create, you know, basically you use your, your they were iPhone apps, uh, Android apps, but basically you would use your phone to basically morph your face into a zombie. So I did that for a while. I mean, that was kind of like, you know, learning like different makeup techniques. I would, they would, I think for this, for the project, what they ended up giving was like maybe a hundred or more photos of actors. And I had to go through all the, you know, the, the actors, they were done and up as zombies. So I, you know, because it's using an actor's face, I had to go through each photo and sort of mark, like, you know, I'm going to use this character, you know, this person's eye, I'm going to use this person's nose. You couldn't use the same person's, like, features because it's someone's likeness, for obviously. Um, but I would use that, and I, you know, I would start, you know, basically looking up, like, you know, makeup for film and makeup for horror films. Uh, and that was also a way that kind of, like, introduced me to Lon Chaney because he was such a pioneer in makeup. Yeah, yeah. So, so in a way, working on that project really also, among all of the other elements, just sort of combined with them together, it was like the perfect storm of influences, really, to direct you, Lon Chaney. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you shared uh, some of that work with me. Uh, I, I got to see some of what you were doing for that app, which was quite interesting. You took your face and put it through a bunch of zombie changes. Okay. Which, which was quite funny, uh, quite interesting indeed. Um, so you got bored with animation and it wasn't paying well enough. And so uh, you got into character design, but then you got into doing comics. And so before Lon Chaney Speaks, there was a series of comics, I guess, that you did. And you were you also hosted and created your own comics festival, your own Comic Con. Yeah. Yeah, I did that for, I guess, I mean, it was a, it was a small show in Williamsburg in, in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Um, so I did that for three years, and you know it was, you know, I was working in 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 games and animation and doing comics, and you know I, you know just like everyone else, you know you you apply to different, uh, to exhibit in different comic shows, mm-hmm. and you know just like everyone else else I not everyone else but I didn't get in. Funny, I still wanted to show my work. Sure. So, you know, I thought, well, why? I know a couple people and I, you know, I've got a nice credit card. Uh, <laughs> 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 so why don't I put on my own little show? Um, and, you know, I can't compete with New York Comic Con or, and, you know, SBX or anything like that. But, you know, like, I'm sure there's other people that, you know, would want to show their work and I can make the tables affordable. And it can just be if I if I break even. Great you know and, mm-hmm. and show my work um but i so i did that for three years um so i organized the show um it you know, looks good it was a good experience met a lot, a lot of nice people um but then i sort of realized that you know i learned that i i don't want to be an organizer <laughs> <laughs> because i mean it's it, the first year was fine. I mean, it's it's always what happens. You know, it's it's natural. It's it's when it first happened, no one has any expectations, right? Because it's, it's new, and no, it's it's they, it's like this is new. So, but but then the, it goes well. I'm like, okay, so they're expecting something as good, or if not better, the next year, and it's like, okay, that went okay, and then it's like, 
you start getting expectations, people start making demands, and it's just like, I'm, you know, I'm just breaking even, I'm not making any money on this, and I'm just doing this because I'm doing this my own free time, yeah. and I also want to make comics. Uh, so I, you know, I decided, like, okay, this was, you know, it was a good experience, but moving on, I wanted to focus more on my own comics. Sure. You know, which I did, and you know, I, that ended up using that extra energy, and I ended up you know, end up selling a book to Pantheon. Um, and I, oh, did they, oh, through a show, right? I mean, it, yeah, you I did, noticed at Mocha. At Mocha. So basically, I had, um, was at Mocha, I was exhibiting, and uh, it's kind of a funny story. Well, maybe I just think it's funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was exhibiting. I had um, I had my Lon Chaney comic. I had a couple other comics I had made. Uh, but my Lon Chaney was like the newest thing I had done. And it was, you know, I think it was a mini comic, uh, I think. And I had maybe one or two issues of it. Um, but anyway, so I'm at... I'm out exhibiting. I had, had a pretty good spot right by the door, which I was very thankful. Uh, and down, coming down through the aisle, I, I see Chip Kid. Um, so I don't. I'm sure Chip Kid is a, is the editor, acquiring editor at, at Pantheon. He's also an amazing designer. He's also an amazing, nice person. Um, but. I had recognized him, you know, from this because I was a big fan of his work. He's done so many covers and whatnot, and uh, I I didn't know what to do, but I just like I wanted to meet him, so I just kind of stuck out my hand, like to shake, oh. <laughs> and it was you know like maybe 15, 20 feet away. <laughs> hey, you over there! <laughs> but it was like there was no one else on the floor, and it was just him and I, and I was like, what the hell? Just stick out your hand, Pat. Uh, so like like an idiot and it just stuck up my hand and he's like okay so he comes <laughs> over and he shakes my hand and I said hi Mr. Kid like I'm a really big fan of your work and 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 whatnot and you know I've so and he's like oh yeah da, 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 da. and he's he looks at my comics and whatnot and he's like yeah you've heard nice work and I'm like okay and he's you know about to walk away and I thought you know I'm not gonna get this chance again I said you know Mr. Kid can I can I give you some of my comics you know I didn't realize, you know, I didn't think that he would ever buy them or it was going to lead to anything else. It was just like, I have so many of your books. Can I please, please give you something like mine? It was like token appreciation or whatever. Um, uh, But yeah, and just a backstory. It's like when I I had learned graphic design and I I learned graphic design because I, I needed to get basically wanted to get freelance work doing graphic design um, to help pay my bills. And how I taught myself graphic design was, I think I got a book on type by Ellen Lupton. Okay. And I got a book on Chip Kid. <laughs> well, he's a great graphic designer, so yeah. So it's like that, I was like that, well, that was the beginning of my education as as a doing graphic design. So it was like, so it was like, in, it was, you know, an important moment for me. So I ended up giving his, his my comics, uh, and I'm exhibiting, the show's going over, whatever, lots of people, it's, you know, crazy, like usually is. Uh, and he comes back and he says, you know, hey, I read your comics, you should pursue these, these are good. I'm like, okay, great, thank you so much, I, I'm glad you, you like them. And then he asked me if I would be interested in doing a Batman cover. 
for his Batman Black and White. Wow. So I was like, yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I will not do. <laughs> but yeah, I won't do that for you, Chip Kid. But yes, yeah, so I was like, yes, of course. So you know, one thing left another. Um, I ended up winning, I think, the award. Yes, I went up one for the award for the excellence. Mocha Award for Excellence in the Show for my comic Lon Chaney. So that was, you know, that was great. Um, and then when I I did the freelance for, for Chip, uh, and then he ended up offering to buy my book. And then and that was that, and here we are. Yeah. And well, he bought the book for me. So. He bought the book, and, and so how long did it take from conception to publication? A while. And it was kind of like, it was my first book. So I was kind of like teaching myself like how to tell a story that long. Um, yeah. It was also, we had the, it was, you know, uh, it came out, it was kind of, we were kind of dealing with COVID and the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that kind of like threw a wrench and everything. And like, uh, like, I remember I was such an idiot. I, I you know, looking back now, I'm like, I with a production person um, manager, she said, you know, we're we're having trouble getting, you know, samples, whatever, back from China because of COVID, you know, something 19. I'm like, what's COVID? I don't know. What, what, what are they talking about? Because I wasn't paying attention to the news. I was just I was what? working on my book uh, like an idiot. Um, but it's like with COVID, I'm like, I'm like, oh, oh. And then that it, it complicated issues a little bit, like it made it a little bit harder like when it debuted, I never had like a signing mm-hmm. because we were right in the pandemic. Um, so it was like had some virtual events, but Which nowhere near as as good when it comes to yeah. Yeah, people want to people want to pick up the book and hold the book and touch the book. It's like it's a it's an object. They don't want to like a book is a book, right? A yeah. book. Um, it's a you know. Big difference between a book and a PDF. It's <laughs> I know, right? It's a world of difference. It absolutely, you know, a book reveals commitment. You know, a PDF is just like another okay, you yes. know. But a, com- a book is a commitment. You've committed to this to this, you know, and uh, enterprise, whatever it is. So when you buy a book, it's serious, folks out there. Buy books. But I, I mean, the thing that I like about books is they like smell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't smell a PDF. Or Man, I got to tell you something. I, well, years and years ago, uh, I forget what it was, but I'm, I'm sitting next to my wife and, uh, you know, and I'm a big comic collector. And I don't know about you, but the smell of comics is like old comics is like a, a perfume to me. Right. So I'm leaning over and I'm I'm, you know, I'm smelling her neck. And all of a sudden I said, you smell like you smell like an old comic book. And she was like, for some reason, she was insulted. <laughs> <laughs> But to this day, I tell her, you know, one of the things that got me, you smell like an old comic book. (laughs) She still doesn't think it's a a compliment, but anyway. And no, does she really smell like that? No. (laughs) Not really. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Yes. The smell of a book. It's true. And as they age, they get better, right? You know, the smell becomes a little stronger, a little mustier, and it's got that history to it. You know, the love of books carry history pdf just somehow doesn't do that does it yeah i mean one of my favorite things is like i i like to buy used cartooning books like oh okay and you know i'll buy them off of 
eBay or something like that, or I'll, or I'll find it in Strand. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times they'll have, like, it's it's autographed to someone. Uh-huh, sure. You know, and, like, the one time, like, I found something, and it was, like, I looked in the back cover, and it was maybe a book. It was a Otto Sloglow book, Little King book, and someone oh, had gifted yeah. it to someone else. And someone had drawn, like, a beautiful kind of, like, little realistic drawing of a dog on the, like, the back, like, back page. And it was, like, two, I think, I think it was oh. Sally or something like that. Um, but it was just, like, a beautiful, like, little surprise. It's, like, it's, you know, someone owned this book. It has, like, a history to it. Yeah. Um, Somebody drew on it. Yeah. And gave it to another person, and now I have it. Oh, this is what I love about stuff like that, you know? I mean, um, this little piece of artwork somebody created is is probably lasted, you know, lived beyond their years, and there it is still, still there, and uh, which is pretty cool, you know. Um, so you collect instructional booklets. These are, uh, you know, how to. Well, there's they're just collection of like cartoons. Like for example, like oh. it, it was like the Little King, and it just okay. has all the Little King strips. Oh, okay, sure, sure. And they're they're old printings of these co- old collections, not not contemporary collections. Yeah, they're just like, like the actual print date is like 1930. Um, yeah. But it was, wow. he has this one book Otto did was Everything's Rosy. Uh huh. So it's collections of cartoons that he drew, and there's you have the book comes with like a red gel. And you put the red gel over the cartoon, and it reveals like a gag. Oh, <laughs> what fun! That's um, really cool. But in the front of the book, it says like, you know, if you lose the like color gel, you can send like ten cents to the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't lost the gel yet, but you know, maybe if I do. Uh, yeah, you've got an address to reach out to. Yes. Is there an email? No email. <laughs> oh, maybe maybe they've got a you know an Instagram or something you can reach out to. Well, anyway, uh, I mean that's pretty cool. That's that's you know one of those things that's interesting about cartoonists is the their collections. You know, uh, I had Dennis Kitchen on the show, and of course Dennis Kitchen is like one of the world's greatest collectors. Uh, and we didn't get too deep into discussing his collections, but you know there's a great comic dennis did about um having a discussion with with god uh at the pearly gates and what's going to happen to his comic co- his uh, collections um and uh, you know he's trying to negotiate <laughs> a way to bring his collections into heaven with him you know uh which is a great it was a great comic anyway uh yeah so what about what i'm seeing this picture on the this article about the comic show which was called the grand comics festival in williamsburg and uh, and this this image i'm seeing is of a comic called savage brute what's that about oh uh that was about a three nipple barbarian uh, <laughs> post-apocalyptic astoria queens um do you do you remember the cartoon thunder the barbarian of course yes uh-huh. It, was one of, it was one of my favorite shows. I think like Jack Kirby did some like character yeah. for it uh, yeah. with Alex Tope. And but yeah, it was a, it was a little bit inspired by that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of oh. like. A, oh, I'm sorry. Do you know the work of um, Dan Thompson at all? I do think of like. I don't know. It does a strip called Harley on Go Comics. Um, 
uh, and what was the other one I loved, which is kind of an adventure um, strip. Uh, I got to look it up. It's terrible. These things are these things are, are leaving leaving my mind. Um, and those are different Dan Thompson. Um, oh yes, Rip Haywire. Yeah. Rip Haywire. That's it. Yeah, Rip Haywire. Boy, that that guy. He too is in the same kind of school. The same love of Alex Toth. Um, you know, the same love of, of all of these kinds of, you know, probably Sid Hoff too, but you can see what he's after in his stuff. You're probably aware of it. Yeah. Um, reminds me of, of what you're talking about there. Another cartoonist who's influenced by Alex Toth's character designs for Hanna-Barbera in years ago, or, uh, some of Jack, Jack Kirby's stuff. I mean, there's such a definitive look to that stuff, you know, uh, and talk about s- simplification and editing, um, you know, Toth was really a master at that, not only in his character designs, but in his uh, comics, which were beautifully designed, usually, even when he was working on something like Hot Wheels. Yeah, um, I, yeah it was just amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at Hot Wheels maybe a, a few days ago, but yeah, it was just like, this is for Hot Wheels? I mean, yeah, right. Most, <laughs> most people would be like, all right, just phone it in, yeah, draw some pictures. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's beautifully done. I mean, it's just, I mean, I guess. Didn't he die like he had a heart attack at his table or something like that? You know, um, I'm was, not sure how he passed away now. Uh, I think he was like a really intense person. Um, oh, yeah, he was. So, yeah, you don't want to. You, you, Alex Toth wrote a zillion. It's interesting if you follow like magazines like Comic Book Creator, um, anything that John Cook has put together as a, a magazine over the years, and he's interacted with Alex Toth. Alex Toth used to write these copious letters, handwritten letters to John that he would publish in one of his magazines. Either Comic Book Artist or Comic Book Creator. Um, I'm not sure which one it was. But it, back in the day, Alex Toth used to write these, and they were intense. He was filled with, you know, opinions. But uh, he was also one of those guys that if you crossed him, and I, I heard a story once about Gary Groth, who who uh, had, I guess, a longstanding friendship with him. And then at one point, Groth said something about, you know, that the material Toth and his generation worked on, you know, it was this, you know, in Groth's point of view it was just you know the dreck of the drecks you know pulp genre material and toth took great offense to that and i think that was the end of their friendship um but he was he was like you know a difficult guy like that and um uh, but anyway you know boy his work is so beautifully conceived i mean every time you look at a page it's just like oh my gosh you know i uh, oh gosh i envy the ability to to think that clearly on, on the comics page, you know, uh, so beautiful. Anyway, this is getting away from from Patrick, you know, from Pat Dorian. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is how are you working? Are you working digitally? Are you working on paper, on uh, Bristol board? What tool? And clearly, you know, this may or may not be pen and ink. I get the feeling that there's more materials, you know, going on here than that, unless it's, you know, digital uh, approximations of of uh, you know uh charcoal or um oil style or something like that i originally started out like traditionally but now i just i all it's all digital it's Uh, all digital yeah i mean i can't (laughs) i'm running out of space for (laughs) paper too much paper in my apartment (laughs) i mean my my wife is like i remember the days when you would scan in every page and every time you do like you know you would do a patch on a drawing or something like that you would scan it in 
Yep. That's why it's like, there's no paper in the apartment. There's just books. There's yep. Well, that was the, I've got stacks and stacks of, of you know, hand-drawn comics on paper. Uh, it's all hand-drawn. What the heck am I talking about? But I've got all this paper from, you know, a lifetime of making comics um, stacked up in a corner. And now everything I've done in the last five years is on the iPad. And uh, so there's no paper. You know, it's just all of this stuff. Uh, which is a benefit and a curse all in and of itself. But I, I, I feel like, you know, the the accessibility of working on an iPad is just so great. It means that I don't ever have to stop drawing. <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah. what are you working on? What's, what tools are you using? But, well, I primarily work in Photoshop. Um, that's, that's uh, yeah, Photoshop. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, but for like animation work, I would, you know, work at Toon Boom or Animate. But for comics, it's it's just all Photoshop. Um, you mean Adobe Animate? Is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. I'm talking okay. about Adobe Animate. Toon Boom and Animate. Okay, cool. Uh, wow. So, so everything's done in Photoshop. That's really interesting. So are you working in Photoshop on a tablet or are you working on uh, a computer? Um, I have a Wacom tablet. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's not like for a while I worked on a Cintiq. In, yeah. Like in animation, I would work on a Cintiq in a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. Um, but this, I mean, I'm using a, a Wacom um, tablet. I kind of like it that it's just, it's, I mean, this idea, of, I like gesture yeah. uh, and this idea of sort of like chance. Um, so it's like, you know. Of course, when you're kind of doing it this way, it's like not you come up with a lot of crap. Uh, sometimes it's a lot of hit or miss. Yeah, delete, delete, delete. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's it's better than that's you know if I had a brush and did it on a piece of paper, I would you know ruin like a five dollar piece of paper. Um, but I, I use you know I just have that. And it's also I found like I've had some problems with tendonitis. Oh, so sorry to hear that. This this is a little bit easier on my arm. Um, just as far as like drawing, because I'm I'm usually you know I'm you know I'm freelancing full time now, so mm-hmm. I'm usually just teaching one class, so I'm usually sitting in the chair a lot. Um, I usually my work schedule. I usually get up around maybe five, uh-huh. something like that. Um, I like to work in the morning when there's no one, like basically it's quiet, whatnot. Yeah. Um, then my wife usually gets up around you know. 6:30, whatever. She works at the Museum of Modern Art as a fundraiser. Oh wow! Oh, that's an intense job. Yes, yes, it's an it's an intense job. Uh, I kind of like I've learned how like the sausage gets made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than you want to know. Like all those artists, how are they going to get support? Oh, foundations, development, uh, fundraising. Um, it's weird. Like you know, commercial art, like animation and uh comics it's like oh we only have this you know we have a very tight budget i'm sorry you know it's like we don't have as much money but in like fine art and whatnot it's like we have all the money in the world (laughs) (laughs) here's a million dollars for you you get a million dollars here's five hundred thousand dollars and i'm like uh one page down (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's a different world gotta draw faster yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
it's it is amazing how much money is you know floating around in the world of fine art but i don't know if you see those ads on quora or whatnot you know one of the i i never click on them but it's like one of the safest investments you can make you know is in fine art uh these days it continues to appreciate never goes down so yeah. uh, <laughs> but it's a racket you know uh it's a it's a racket and it's a you know there's a lot of schmooze schmoozing that goes on to get that money as i'm sure your wife knows oh yes i mean yes she 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 knows how to write a good thank you now um <laughs> it's, it's it's not to put no it's not to diminish it at all but like you'd be surprised how people there are so many people that don't know how to write a good thank you note. like how to because it's you know it's it's all in relationships and how you manage those relationships it's like it's it's important um but she's 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 a writer herself uh-huh. and you know she uses that skill for her work but she also works on her own books oh she writes fiction non-fiction fiction uh-huh but she's working on a novel now which i knock on wood uh hopefully maybe maybe first draft this year we'll see uh <laughs> wow but she's like you know she's very supportive but in any way it's like i was saying it's like you know she, she gets up mm-hmm. we go for a walk um we go for a lot of walks she goes for a walk uh she goes to work i go to work um but yeah, actually i usually just i usually try to break up the day between drawing and writing mm-hmm. um, so i first a lot of times what i i it's like sort of a pitfall that i have it's like I'll start working on a drawing and start like, okay, I'll do another version of the character design and I'll keep doing it. I'll try this, try this, try it. And I'll kind of fall down like the, the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, okay, I got to figure out the story first. It's like, I, I learned kind of the hard way. It's, it's like, you know, it's a lot faster to write it out than it is to draw it out. So like I, I've done the sort of thing where it's like, I, I spend like, here's my block. I'm going to, I'm going to do nothing but work on the outline work on the story and then you know basically eat my vegetables and then i can have my dessert where i can just draw um but like managing my time for that we i just finished just finished the book for first second that's going to be out in fall 2023 yeah Um, but now i'm basically i'm starting not starting i'm focusing full time on my next book for pantheon um I might be working on another book with an estate. We're still kind of like figuring out the details. Um, but then I'm also working, I just finished an outline for a thriller. I've been watching a lot of uh, Jello films, uh, Dario Gento films uh-huh. <laughs> recently. Uh, it's sort of like distraction with all the politics and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who knew like murders, like thrillers and escapes would be a little bit more, I don't know, relaxing than. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? There's something relaxing about televised murder, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, we're watching Murder Only Murders in the Building, which is, I, I guess, the favorite old people's show or something anyway. But, uh, and, you know, I find it so relaxing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the world, you know, the world's, you know. You know how it's it's gonna have a kind of a happy ending, or you know it's I don't know it's it's a little bit of an escape. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, or you see favorite performers like in this case Steve Martin and Martin Short, and and you you just fall into that that world easily. I mean, this is one of the things that you know uh, when Gary Groth 
insulted Alex Toth, one of the things I think that was missing from that estimation of escapism, you know, or pulp fiction, if, if you will, is this idea that it does act as a bomb against the, the you know, nastiness of, of everyday life, you know, and sometimes we just need to go there. We need to go to Star Wars or we need to, I mean, you don't want to live there all the time, but sometimes you just need to get away from it, you know. And uh, and it, that's an important just like horror films, you know, uh, are cathartic and and have a purpose. Well, there's a purpose for, you know, escapist entertainment for sure. And uh, anyway, but so, yeah, we all need that. Right. Um, one way or the other. Um, so then you, you're working on two new, two new books and you, you, I'm surprised you, you've got this book finished for first second, but it won't see print until fall 2023. Now we're talking a whole year away, right? This is 2022, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's funny. That's how it usually works. It's usually, it's, so like the time, you know, I hang on learning. It's like, by the time a book comes out, it's like, it's like really, it's like you've, you're so past it. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's like, it has to go through a whole machine, like marketing and being printed and, I mean, it's got to be like proofread. It's got to be there's a there's a yeah there's a whole process pipeline that it has to go through. Uh, once you're done, I'm you know, um, the book was written by Terry Kane Kanefield. I just did the artwork. Okay. I was you know lucky in in that respect that I I didn't have to. I just focused on on the artwork. Okay. Um, so, but is that hard for you to do? It's you know it's. It was the first time I've ever done it. Um, you know, it's a you know, COVID kind of makes it a little bit a difficult process because you don't really get to meet with people. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it was, it's you know, it's important that you know you treat. I guess the writer and the comic is it's it's really a collaboration. Yes. Um, so you want to make sure that you know I I've learned is that you know everyone is on the same page and it's there is you know comics like writing comics is it's it's still like a very much a visual visual like medium even though it's 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 textures you know textures it's words and pictures um i think with a lot of I guess kind of a boom in nonfiction graphic novels. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important that you know, like, when you're working with a writer, that they they understand that you know, what she did. That it's really like it's is a visual medium. So you want to make sure that you know it's not redundant. You know, yes, uh-huh. redundancy. I think I one of the best one of the best hits of advice I ever heard was what from Alan Moore. Uh-huh. He's he got this like tip from I think a, an editor, a very strict editor at DC. He said no more than I believe it was 120 words per page. Oh, it's good. And that's you know he he uses that. So like whenever he's writing his his dialogue, he'll write a little number like next to the dialogue, you know, like how many words he used. And that's coming from Alan Moore, who's not he, definitely not a sparse kind of writer, and he loves words and very kind of like not in a bad way but kind of decorative language um but yeah i mean it's just it's it was a different process i think you know i 
Yeah. I, I, I kind of maybe prefer writing my own comics. I mean, every moment always does in a way. Um, but it was a different kind of, it was a helpful, it was a good learning experience for me, like trying to sort of like separate myself from it and just focus on the artwork. Yeah, and it's in the next book, are you writing it or are you? Oh, I'm writing it, yeah. For the next couple of books, I'm writing and drawing it. Um, with the book that I'm writing, working on with the estate, I might have a co-author. Uh-huh. That's kind of like a deal, a, a detail that we're working out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've never worked with an estate before, so that will be a new experience. When you say the estate, the estate of? I can't say. Oh, 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 this is a biography. This is a biography of a, of a very, I would say, famous and appointed American author. Um, okay, okay. So this is like something I'm, I'm, I'm working out. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, I work as a full-time freelancer, so I, I'm constantly, it's like I've, you know, I'm juggling different projects always at the same time. Yeah, uh, gotta constantly keep that that you know work coming in. Um, it's gonna be the feast oh, or go ahead. I'm it's usually kind of like feast or famine. Um, yeah, you get a lot of stuff all at once. Yes. So yeah. how do you how do you feel about going between jobs? Can you can you compartmentalize that way? Yeah, I mean, if I could, I can organize my time. I mean, the nice thing about, I mean, there are tight, you know, there are definitely deadlines in books, but they're not as tight as animation. Like when I was working in animation, it was like weekly quota, you have to do color 20 backgrounds every week. Uh, storyboarding and animatics, you had to uh, storyboard and do an animatic uh, one minute per week. And wow. it's just like really intense, like do three rotations a week. Ink and color, it was like, it's very like two weeks for design, Two weeks for animation, two weeks, it's a blah, 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 blah. And it's all, you're all part of a machine. And it's, you know, it's it's designed that way because it's like all scheduled. Like, they, yeah. that's how they budget the show. Like, if they go if they go behind schedule, then they have to hire more people. And then that means they go over budget. And that could maybe close the studio. Or they might have to lose the project. Or they might have to lay people off. Um, so it's very, like, budgets are very tight. Um, especially like when studios kind of lowball themselves to try to get the project from, you know, competing, being competitive with other studios. Um, but like, you know, books, the deadlines are a little bit more flexible. I mean, it's in a way it's, it's nice because it's like, they realize it's like creative process and it's like, you're creating something. So it's like, it's not, it's, it's not as well paying as say as like animation, um, you know, when I would like, let's say if I work on a commercial, like on a commercial budgets are pretty high. Like if I worked as a production artist in a commercial, I would maybe get paid $800 a day and I could do that for like maybe 10 days. You know, that would be a pretty good, you know, a pretty good paycheck. Whereas books, it's like not, you might just, I've, I've gotten, you know, you're pitching your book. I've been offered like $500 for a book and I've been offered $20,000 for the same book. Wow. Um, I'm assuming you took the $20,000. Yeah, I took the $20,000. Or now I'm working with even more. I mean, it it really depends. Like, there's no kind of, like, set kind of, like, this is, you know, you for a 120-page book, you will get such and such. It depends on the publisher. It depends on the project. depends on the economy. You know, so it's, like, it's what you sort of can get. And what you can get is, like, you know, that also depends, like, 
determines like how much time you could spend on this. Yes. You know, like I had like one of my uh, friends, she said like, oh, you only work in black and white. I said, no, I, I can work in full color. The thing is the reason why I work in just limited color and two colors is because it's faster. And it's like, I don't have that much. If I spend, did this a full color book, it would take me twice as long to do. Absolutely. No one's paying me by the hour. It's like, here's your advance. There you go. Figure it out. And it was, you know, but that's just, you know, that's the way it is. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, I'm in a point in my career where it's like I, I mean, I probably earned more money doing games and, and apps than I probably will ever make in my, maybe not my life. Sure. But it was very, you know, I earned a lot of money. You know, I wasn't necessarily satisfied with the work and I'm, that's why I'm no longer doing it. But it was beneficial. I, I, I took that money and, you know, like I paid off all my debts mm-hmm. and like I made a nice little nest egg. And it's like it's basically bought me time and bought me freedom that I could do more projects that I want to do more, be more creative and not necessarily like I'm not I'm not necessarily like I want a new house. I want a new car. Like if that's not really important to me, for me, it's just like, you know, I have a sort of like, what do I need? And like this, you know, it's <laughs> it's not a very good business plan, but it's like I make art so I can make money so I can make more art. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the cycle, man. Um, cycle. Which, that's what it goes to. Which people, most people, like I, I tell like my students that they're just like, what? It's like, yeah. I just, I. She said, what's the good thing about working in animation or working as a cartoonist? I said, you get to do work. She's yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's that's it. It's like <laughs> that's it. Yeah, you're just doing the work. The work, the work is the reward. Yeah. That's what you get. And having the the privilege to do the work is exactly that. It is exactly that. So true. So I have a couple questions, and and one at a time here. Um, first one was whether or not you got any editorial input on Lon Chaney and on the other books that you're doing. And secondly, how did you pitch? You know, what's the process by which you pitched your uh, your the books that you're working on now or at least the one that's just yours i'm sure that the pitch was done by somebody else maybe for the for the one but so did you get a lot of input uh editorial uh input or futzing with lon cheney at all not really i mean i i got chip gave me some good suggestions and you know good feedback and then i also had someone you know basically doing like word editing proofing (laughs) stuff like that but like pantheon it's like what I love working about Pantheon is like they really respect you as an artist. Mm-hmm. They want it. And they're very, very supportive. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, with the I'm still waiting on the edits for the book I just finished. Uh-huh. See, um, I think now it goes into the managing editors um, world. Mm-hmm. So they have to give me feedback. So we'll see. Um, but I, you know, hopeful, knock on wood, that there's not many uh, edits. Mm-hmm. we'll see i mean but it's a lot of time it's kind of like i mean what i also like about books is that they're hiring you because you know, they're they're buying your book because you are the expert on your topic yeah which is great i mean like you are the expert so it's like they're going to give you suggestions um i mean my wife's um father worked as an editor uh and i remember like you know, reading about editors, like one of the editors' fear is that, you know, they're not making 
uh, when they give edits to a book, one of the fears that editors have sometimes have is that they're not making the book better. They're just making the book different. So uh, working with editors for books, from my experience, it's it's like they're not a lot of like, it's not like working with like an iron fist and they're like, the book has to be this way. And uh, like that has not been my experience in comics, especially because it's such is if you're writing, drawing, coloring, lettering the entire book, then it's kind of like that's a lot of work to do. So it's it's like you have to be the ex when when they buy your book, I'm assuming that they feel pretty confident that you can get the job done. Yeah, it's a lot of like jobs that you're doing as like as one person. Um, so you know, like I think for like a pitch, like you know, I've sold. There was no kind of like, uh, you know, if I asked my agent, you know, like, what do you need for a pitch? He said, give me as much as you can. So uh-huh. as much as you can. So that could be, you know, for example, 24 pages. Uh, I sold the one book, um, this last book, it was like one page of artwork. Uh-huh. Uh, one page of artwork, but Terry had, I think, like almost like a full script, maybe a, a good chunk of the script. And that was pitched by the, I think, managing editor. I believe so. You know, the managing editor and, and people are like, "Yes, you, you, you're the managing editor. You, 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 you've got a good, you know, head on your shoulders." And you know, we agree. Uh, so, but like for Lon Chaney, I just, you know, I had my 16-page comic, and you know, I Dan Frank, who recently passed away, maybe about, I think about a year ago or so, uh, he was the I think managing editor, I believe that was his title, I'm not sure, at, at Pantheon. But I, you know, I went to a meeting, Chip was there, my agent was in the in the there in the corner, Dan Frank was there, and you know, I had my little mini comic, whatever, and I just, you know, as an actor, got up out of my seat and I like pitched them the story of Lon Chaney. And I acted it out. I acted out like little vignettes. I mean, so this is what happens with this. And I just, you know, a lot of times like my students you know they say they get really nervous whenever they talk and i'm like but the thing is like when you when you get into a conversation and you're talking about something that you're passionate about and that you know mm-hmm. you won't be nervous because you know all the information you know it's kind of like that all those kind of so i just kind of went into that kind of like i'm in the moment right now yeah i'm just kind of like this is why i love this character and this is the stories i can tell and this is why this is important it was just like, and people, I mean, I think publishers, editors, I mean, what do I know? But I think they they want to buy books that people are passionate about. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, because it's, it's a lot of fucking work to do, make a book. Absolutely. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's, people don't know. It's like, it, it is a marathon, like writing a book, drawing a book. It is like finishing is so hard finishing is so but it's incredibly important but to go through like especially if you're doing like a 120 page book you know i did 220 pages and it's 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 hard to finish that and it's like you've got life comes in the way you have pandemics you have relationships personal problems issues that come in and you still have to work on the book either there's at times where you want to like you're you're not you're feeling great about the book you're frustrated with the book but you still have to like every day show up consistency again and again and again you got to work it do a page do another page even if it's a panel by panel 
So it's like, you know, they, I, I think editors or publishers, at least, you know, at Pantheon, they realize like how much work and effort and blood and sweat goes into making this book. So they want to make like, you know, they want to be supportive, like, cause they, you know, it's, it's great because they, they want the book to succeed. You know, yeah. you know, it's as much as an investment in, in as you are putting into it as they are putting into it. So they want to, you know, so they want to support you and facilitate that, um, which is great. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's making a book is hard. Uh, so you've got to be you've got to be really passionate about it. Yeah, it's got to be a subject you're really deeply, deeply passionate about because it's going to take you a couple of years. And if it takes you a couple of years, you get and you're going to make it through the long haul there. You really had better because it's going to wax and wane, right? As you, as yeah. you sometimes you're tired and and you don't want to uh, think about it, and or but it's all you think about at the same time, um, you know. So that's it, it, it's like those are really good words, words to the wise, really. You know, it's got to be something you got to be passionate about. I mean, at the end of the day, like even like let's say like the book comes out. I mean, I was fortunate to get you know really get good reviews from the New York Times and, and you know, Kirkus Star Review, but, you know, that didn't necessarily need to happen. That couldn't, there was no reason that had to happen. I mean, so sometimes you might work, like, you know, work a year or something on a project and then it comes out and then there's nothing. <laughs> I know that only too well. <laughs> it's like Chip told me, it's like best advice Chip told me. It's like sometimes the book is the reward. Yeah. That's it. Yep, seeing it in print, and uh, you know that I've heard that from from several different people. You know, sometimes just seeing it print, seeing it through to fruition. Sometimes that's got to be enough, you know, for you to continue because you don't get the accolades. But in this case, accolades are well deserved, and it's a lovely book. Lon Chaney speaks by Pat Dorian, uh, which is just terrific. And you know, it's so steeped in cartooning history as well as film history. I just love the combination together and i love the idea that you're working on a a biography of uh, an american author i think that that sounds really exciting and absolutely again you know building on what you've done here i think uh i'm looking i'm really looking forward to seeing that because this is this is a book um lon chaney that i flipped through again and again i'm just kind of in awe in of your your cartooning and your economy and you know, your ability to sum things up in wonderful, wonderful cartoons, wonderful comics, man. These are really wonderful. In particular, I just love the illustrations you do for the uh, the synopsises, if that's the right word, of the films in this book, uh, which are, you know, like wonderful mini movie posters that are in this book. Uh, it just adds so much to it. It's great. Wonderful book. Yeah. Well, Pat, I think I'm about to faint. <laughs> from, from the heat in this room and um and i hope my my listeners appreciate <laughs> what i go through you know to to and and you've gone without air conditioning now for two hours and on uh, very hot i'm sure it's got to be awful now after a thunderstorm in new york so you're probably dying to put the ac on too uh, uh today and um i thank you very much for being here this has been wonderful well thanks so much for having me Okay, that does it for our interview with Pat Dorian, and I hope you will look for Lon Chaney Speaks or order it from your local bookshop. Uh, It is a wonderful book. It will not disappoint you if you are a fan of classic cartooning, if you are a fan of great books in general. Lon Chaney Speaks from Pantheon by Pat Dorian. Look for it. 
wherever good books are sold. And uh, that, again, uh, look for me on Kickstarter. That's right. Look for me on Kickstarter at greenscreencomic.com until August 5th. You have the chance, yes, you have the chance, to get a wonderful 40-page full-color comedy fantasy adventure comic book in your own hands very soon. Just all you got to do is go to greenscreencomic.com, pledge whatever you can uh, pledge to back this project, and it will become a reality, and it will be flying on its way to you and arriving in your mailbox. One of those wonderful things that arrives in the mailbox that is not a bill. And uh, I promise you, it will come with some goodies, too, and uh, buttons and bows and all of that. So, uh, again, greenscreencomic.com until August 5th. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Uh, You may be late, uh, and it will be gone. So you will regret it. You will. So go to greenscreencomic.com. Find me on Instagram at greenscreencomic. You can keep up with all of my latest adventures uh, in comics and whatever else I'm doing greenscreencomic.com and don't forget quick comics review on YouTube at Jeff Grogan's Blockhead so wow that's a lot of stuff to remember but the thing that's really important to remember is greenscreencomic.com until August 5th Uh, I appreciate your support in whatever form it takes and uh, I think that will do it for now uh, next time, it will be coming very quickly. I've got another, you know, interview um, all ready to go. So it will be coming quickly to you. I'm trying my best to get them as quickly as I can. Uh, we have the great George Gant coming up. Beware of Toddler. And uh, I think if you are a comics lover on Instagram or at Comics Kingdom, you will find Beware of Toddler there. And uh, it's just a wonderful story, wonderful comic. So George Gant will be here Uh, within a couple of weeks so be looking for that until then stay cool wherever you are try to beat the heat in whatever fashion you can and as always thanks for listening